Hello and welcome to the Four Wheel Dive Podcast. I'm Tim Masso, he's Kyle Lindsay. The Drive and Dive starts now. Okay, today we have a topic that is near and dear to enthusiast hearts, but it's also a little bit of a mystery because nothing is discussed quite in the same era of black art and mythos these days as the manual transmission. So today we're going to spend at least the first half of the show talking about how we learned, mistakes we made, best memories we've got of manual transmission cars, and offer some advice for how you guys can get started if you haven't already with stick shifts. Kyle, where did it begin for you? Because I know I abused a bad old 88 Mazda 626 in the 90s. <laughs> so I grew up with, with my dad having a used car card ship. So uh, when I was, was never working there, you know, you know, we, we'd get my cars in every and every now and then. It would give, it would give me a little press, you know, putting or putting around the little stuff like that, like that, cleaning cars and moving stuff around. But the one that I actually like ventured out out on the road and and and, and kind of worked through the kinks kinks of it all was 1992 Lexus Lexus C300. Okay, so now it's interesting with my 626. It was my dad's station car, and I think it was a 2.2 liter four cylinder. So I asked him one day if I could take it out when I was about. I guess I was maybe 18. And I had a friend with me and we took it to the parking lot of the KFC at like 9 p.m. So it was M. It was M. Um, and we both tried to get it in gear and we stalled it. We couldn't get it going. Like we were terrible. This was like the first time. And eventually I got it to go and it was like lugging from hell. Like you can imagine lugging an engine at low RPM. And like the main bearings slowly disintegrating into toothpaste, we could hear every fire of every cylinder. It was like bump, 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 as, this, as the car tried to pull itself along from a stop because I like started it in third gear, and somehow I didn't stall in third, but we couldn't deal with first. And I realized that you don't want to learn stick on a car you love. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, because that that poor clutch will be screaming before too long. Long. Oh my gosh! To the point where, like, I would recommend anyone who's trying to learn a manual transmission just go to an empty parking lot, start with something that's got a big engine or a heavy flywheel, so it's got a lot of engine inertia, and then just focus on first gear. Just focus on getting it into first gear smoothly without stalling it. Because if you can get it into first. Everything else is easy. Second, third, fourth. It's easy to shift once you're moving. It's hard to get it moving. Yeah, that's especially when you're bouncing between different vehicles and uh, different manufacturers because all it seems like 
even the same vehicles, it seems like all clutches just feel a little different from, from one another. And like me, I've, I've, I've got some manuals, manuals personally, but with driving the press cars and stuff, you know, I, unfortunately, I don't get near as many manuals as I used to see, but, but I had the good fortune of driving the new Z with the standard six-speed, which was fantastic but point to my sto story like my 89 sx it's it's got a stage four six clutch in it which is extreme stiff it's like an on on off switch. you basically basically just kind of wind wind the car out 2000 thousand rpm just go <laughs> there's no slit there's no like oh like and eh, sure about it you just go but that z was so easy to drive and, and smooth. The clutch was so, so much lower and stuff. Like, like admittedly, it took me a, a while to kind of, you know, I had to train my, my mind, so to speak, to, to, to relearn smoothness te techniques. You know, it's funny. A little bit of manual transmission history here. But as late as the 1990s, 25% in the early 90s, 25% of the cars on the market we're still, we're still sold with a manual transmission. That's not available. That's not as an option. One quarter of the cars sold were a stick shift. And if we go all the way back to the beginning of time, all of them were manual transmissions. Now, short of shifting with your foot on something like a Model T, uh, for the first half century of the automobile, almost everything was a manual. And in 1929, the Cadillac, the 1929 Cadillac, became the first to offer some degree of synchrony in that so, so you wouldn't crash the gearbox gear to gear because essentially before that you had no ability to shift from gear to gear with one gear taking on the speed necessary prior to being selected so every gear ended with that you know you'll listen to jay leno who knows how to drive a 20s and 30s car and he's still crunching gears because it's the nature of the beast. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why early on in the history of the automobile, the, the number one selling point in a luxury car, like a Marmon 16 or a Duesenberg J or Rolls-Royce Phantom 3 with a 12 it was always how low a speed you could take the car from top gear. So could you put it into top gear at five miles an hour and drive it up to like 90? The idea was that you'd have to shift gear once with the biggest and most flexible engines because there was no synchro Now, in 1952, Porsche with the 356, they designed their own gearbox. For the first time, we had an all synchro forward speed gearbox. But this was also the dawn of the automatic transmission era, which brings us to the present. And there are actually more electric cars sold each year in the U.S., then there are manual transmissions. Manuals are about one to one point five percent. So you got to look. look. It's actually it's it's really only in specific segments too, like you know Mustang, Camaro, Challenger, you know muscle, muscle car stuff. Some some sports cars still offer off from you know, Maserati. Uh, obviously the Z, and I think the new Supra has a manual on now, but it did, didn't originally. So if you want a want a manual, you're only option is in is this car route like you can't go buy a commuter car you can't, can't go um to my knowledge I, I think most of them are just some kind of automatic or cvd yeah it's yeah. very difficult to find manuals and they tend to be in in enthusiast cars like i would say as late as the 2000s you would still see like 
a bare bones manual transmission option as the cheap one. Now, Toyota offers the manual as something like a prestige offering on the Supra. And, you know, the manual transmission is for the hardest core buyer of a Wrangler or a Bronco. Yep, that's it. That's it too. And, and the other thing too, like if you want a manual, you almost have to go go out and special order it because nine times times out of ten, go to any of the, any of these dealers, whether it be a Jeep, a Jeep dealer, a dealer, whatever, none of them are going to have the automatic in stock. Very very rare will you you ever see one stock. If it is, probably secondhand because you know a lot of these dealers are a big you know proponent of this of of the line of the manual is they just assume everybody just wants wants the audit and that's just just nice and you know the other thing too and i'm going to blame ferrari for this but they started this myth in the late 90s that an automated manual was really the same thing and it was the enthusiast's choice because with the ferrari 355 f1 you could slam gears like schumacher and so finally they had a way that the guy who flat out couldn't drive a stick or wouldn't drive a stick could pretend that he was really the hardcore enthusiast because he had the faster shifting transmission. It was the ultimate smokescreen, and it, it led to the end of manual transmissions on hypercars and supercars. Oh, yeah. And just think about packaging requirements stuff. You know, you know, main transmissions for the most, the most part are much smaller than especially new automatic transmissions. But when you're thinking you're thinking hypercars and the super super cars, you know, even on a more on a more real perspective, the C8 Corvette, the car's inherent design does not, not even allow for the potential possibility of, of a manual ever offered. So like the design from the from the get-go to offer some kind of you know high do do da automatic dual clutch clutch whatever um which they're amazing amazing i'm the new c8 c8 it's absolute riot but you know looking looking back at the nissan z i've driven nine speed auto automatic too there's just just something about that that takes part of the car's soul away like there's not, nothing like having that d- direct mechanical con- connection feeling the sh- the shifter braiding in your hand and stuff like like mm-mm, just love it yeah it, there's a connection to the road and a lot of people think that it's just about shifting the gears but what it really is is matching engine speed to road speed that's where you start to realize involvement because otherwise you're just flipping a switch it's match reps downshifts it's giving the engine speed a little bit of a chance to fall before an upshift and if you really want to take it all the way it's heel and towing and track work and that's where you're going to really feel like you're in control of the car for better or for worse you could ace the shift or you could lock up the rear wheels and send it into a skid and that's where there's an edginess of being in control like that Oh yeah, I mean, there's so so many advanced techniques to driving a manual that even I haven't done done a whole whole lot of stuff with. I, I remember way back in the in the day, my grandpa was driving was driving his uh, 48, 48 Ford Suplex, and and um and my, an old home movie. My mom was thinking of him dri- driving down the road. My gra- grandma, you know, double cl- clutch it, like you know, double clutch it down in the first gear, which is interesting in itself because they, they didn't have a synchronized first gear so um but w- whatever medical footwork work he did got that thing down down in the first gear and that thing ring rocket off as as hard as a fed v8 would, would. And that was one of my fond fondest <laughs>
Yeah, I remember when I was a teenager in high school, before I got my permit, a, uh, a local garage, it was like an Italian car specialist, and I went down there to look at an Alfa Romeo Spider, and it was like beat to all hell. It was like 1980s rubber bumper, rusted out. Um, but one of the mechanics, you know, asked me if I liked the car. I said, yeah. He said, you can't afford it, right? And I'm like, nope. And he's like, don't worry, you don't want this one. But let me take you for a ride and show you what this car is all about. This one's junk, but someday you'll own a good one. So we went out, and he was matching revs on every downshift with these flurries of, like, like twin cam, hemi head, four-cylinder, Alfa Romeo, like, music, all of it real. No speakers, no piped-in sound, no synthetic resonators. And every time we came down to a stoplight or slow traffic or a stop sign, ram, ram, ram. And I'm like, I'm in love. I want to be that guy. It was, it was the ultimate automotive experience because the car was a piece of junk, but the experience was like hair raising. It may as well have been a Ferrari. Well, just think that same car car had an auto transmission. How much would have just been been? <laughs> yeah, then you know you've got the Alpha Four C and you've got this twenty six hundred pound carbon fiber mid engine supercar that no one wants because it's all the cramped and compromised of an old Alfa Romeo, but without the soul. Right. And, you know, there, there was a period of time where, where it seemed like, like you know, back in the 70s and 80s, automatics started to become more prevalent in certain uh, sectors as well. Like, I've, I've actually been doing some, some uh, data, and I, I know we're, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, stuff we've bought lately and, and, and whatnot uh, a little bit later in the segment. But um, I've been doing a lot of research in third-gen Camaros, and a, a lot of those... They were offered with a manual, but most of them did not come to manual because, uh, you know, the, the lack of uh, fortitude of, of the main manuals that were available at the time, time at least of the late 80, 80s. Um, so, so like, trying to find some of those old school enthusiast cars in a manual is, is a little difficult as well. Um I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm so obsessed, obsessed with manual lately. I want to want to I want to manual swap everything. <laughs> you know, it's funny if you look at like a, a like a Ferrari 599 with you know whatever the manumatic transmission. It's like 150, 160, 170 thousand. If you find one of the 30 that has the manual transmission, now it's like 475, 500, 550 thousand. It is a huge price delta. It's shocking. Probably because people don't want to deal with servicing that semi-automatic transmission. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. The manuals, you know, still fault simple. Yeah. Uh, gosh, so many, so many things floating in my head that I want to talk about <laughs> regarding manuals. Um, it's funny because no, no, keep going. Sorry, keep going. I was gonna say, have, have you have you ever? had experience with any of the newer manual transmission technology, what the, the, uh, well, the skip shift, which I don't really care too much about. That's, that's more for like fuel economy, but the auto, auto rev mat downshift shifts and the, uh, what was it? The, yeah, like a it was, is a hill start type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I've experienced the, the hill start thing. So there are three tricks that are being rolled out to make manuals more palatable to people who wouldn't otherwise drive them or wouldn't want to try to learn. Um, the first thing is auto rev matching. So when you're slowing down in the manual transmission, when you're coming to a stop, you're going to find that as you shift down into the lower gears, you're going to over rev the engine because all of a sudden, instead of the engine driving the wheels, you reverse the gearing as you're slowing down and now the wheels are driving the engine. 
So to avoid blowing your engine or skidding the rear wheels, flip the engine, you give it some revs, and then you engage the clutch. Well, that takes some learning. So they have new features on almost all of the newly arrived manual transmission sports cars where you just operate the clutch and the thing will slam the revs by itself. And you'll sound like a Grand Prix driver from 1967. It is a fascinating, fascinating feature. I've driven several vehicles with auto rev matching. Uh, you know, the new, new Corvette, or not, not, not the new, new, a C7 Corvette, yeah. the, the Camaro, the, the new, they all have this stuff. stuff. Um, not sure if the Supra does or not, but having driven these vehicles on the track and the sheet, I'm, I must say I'm a big fan of having as much you know, stuff to do myself. Like I like to do, to do my own rev machine and whatnot, not, but depending on how you're dr driving that auto, auto rev match. So much fun, especially cooking hard on a track at 150 miles an hour. And you want to wait till the last second before you slam on those brakes and throw it into a corner corner. You just zip it right down to whatever low gear there that you want. And the, the motor just does everything else. And it is fantastic like it is honestly yeah. easy easier now than ever before to get into a manual transmission and feel comfortable with it that's a fact particularly on a track day like i'll admit i'm good at heel and toe on the road but when you've got to do it four you know three four times in a single corner while also experiencing like a 90 mile an hour speed delta the auto rev matching thing really does make you feel like a hero because if you could do it for real you know, you'd be driving an IMSA. That's genuinely useful. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, so I, I talked about in my Z review um, because, yeah, you know, for I, I keep I keep talking about the Z because it was, that was my, my most recent view. But Nissan offers automatic and the manual as no cost interchange options. So if you want the automatic, great, great. You don't have to pay extra for it. If you want manual, great, great. It ended. Um, but, but how easy it is and all of this extra technology and stuff nowadays, like there's, there's unless you, you just don't want, want the shift. If, if you want to extract the most out of any vehicle that you have or any vehicle that's, that's offered with a mule, if you want the, the most out of the most engagement, most fun, fun, and forget fuel, fuel, the nine speeds going to, going to get better fuel economy, but I, I just I just wouldn't trade for anything. I'm I, I'm an auto enthusiast. I, I like to drive, and save the manuals. Hashtag. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's going to become the number one argument for vintage cars someday because it's the only it's going to be the only way you can get a manual. Um, we'll talk about EVs and manuals in a moment because there are some speculative technologies coming. But I thought I'd mention two other technologies to look for if you want to learn manual, and you want to get in with a modern car that might make the process easier. One is hill hold assist, which most modern manual transmission cars have. So if you're on a hill, you know that you've only got two feet, but you've got three pedals. So you're going to have to sidestep the clutch or the brake, and you're going to have to choose one alongside the gas pedal to pull away on a hill. And it's very easy to backslide. Well, a lot of modern manual transmission cars have a hill hold assist so you can get to the clutch and get to the gas without sliding backwards. So that's one thing to look for. I know that at the very least, the former Ford Focus RS also had a system that would allow you to stall the car. They assume you're going to, if you're learning. 
And then as soon as you press the clutch with the ignition turn, just hitting the clutch would activate the starter motor and restart the car. So look for that too. Absolutely. What what are some of the most memorable cars that you've driven with sticks? I would say I've got a great, this is a great story. This is as good as lugging the Mazda in the KFC parking lot. Um, So in, I guess it was like 2008, I went to a used car dealer and there was this Corvette there. It was like, it was an early, like, like this LS2 C6 and it was a manual transmission. And the guy who was working the lot said he wouldn't let me test drive it, but he would let me ride along. So I'm like, okay, I'm already not serious for this car, but whatever, we'll see, you know? So I get in with him and he stalls it four times before we get off the lot. No idea what he was doing. Well, he, he wanted to show you the skills, though, Dana. Yeah, you're not going to drive this. I'm going to drive this because it's a Corvette and I don't trust you, you know? Okay, sure, whatever you say, mister. He just keeps stalling it. And I later learned with my C5 Corvette, which is probably the most enjoyable manual transmission I've earned. Um, but when you've got a big engine with a lot of torque and a huge flywheel, all you have to do is gently let out the clutch and you're moving five miles an hour. You can let out the clutch in a second gear and the C5 will pull away. I don't know how a C6 with like a six liter engine was stalling again and again. This guy must have had no idea what he was doing. Gosh, that's so funny. He probably could have ran, ran laps around him. <laughs> oh my gosh, I could have pushed the car out of parking lot fast. It was ridiculous. But <laughs> at that point, I'm like, I've seen enough, thanks. And, you know, it's like I left in victory after he tried to, like, you know, put me in my place. Like, you're going to sit and you're going to watch. I'm like, okay, I'll watch. <laughs> i've got the opposite of that so have you ever seen a honda beat oh my god it's like a 60 percent scale convertible nsx yes yes Yes. (laughs) it's a it's a it's a a japanese micro car little little convertible two-seater with a rear mounted three-cylinder motor um I think they only came in manual, manual, but I had the chance to to own one of those. Probably, gosh, it may have been two or three years back now. But, but that little three three cylinder, <laughs> it was a little car with not a whole lot of power. But holy cow, could you wind that, that thing out? It would would rev like you know you know S two thousand levels, and uh, uh, I mean, even though it didn't didn't have power and stuff stuff having stick and 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 just. I, I, I don't know how it was configured, but that was one of the most enjoyable vehicles I've ever driven because also it was right hand drive. So trying to retrain my, my brain to <laughs> drive stick with my with my left hand and then listening to the motor with the top down and everything. I mean, it's just it was just so cool. Oh, no, I want one of those so bad. It's funny you mentioned that because when I was a kid, I had this book. It was like the big book of convertibles. And it was cars from all around the world. And they had weird mutants like the Jankel Tempest, which was like a, a turbo Corvette made in Europe by Robert Jankel. They had the Honda Beat. They had like the Rolls-Royce Corniche, all these crazy things. But the Beat is a momentum car. It's like you've heard that it's more fun to ride a fast or a slow motorcycle fast than a fast motorcycle slow. So you're really going to have more fun with a 250 than a Hayabusa. 
The bead is exactly like that because that's where the manual really is like you're saving grace. You're going to keep the revs up at like 8,500. So you're screaming around your local roads like a Grand Prix driver, but you're only going like 45 miles an hour. I know. It feels so, so fast, not. <laughs> And the skill there, it's it's the skill of maintaining the momentum. It's your it's your angle through a turn, you know, the entry, the corner, and the exit. It's your use of the manual gearbox. It's your rev matching. It's all those things. Because it's only got 63 horsepower. It doesn't take much to stall it or slow down. No. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've actually got a... I don't, I don't even think I've told you this yet. I've, yet. I have a pretty cool project that I've, I've started down the rabbit hole of uh, preparation for. for. Um, do, you, do you remember my 85 Monte, Monte Carlo S? Yeah, I do. Whatever happened with that? I know it was a bit of a... Uh, it's been under a cart outside for the last six months because I couldn't stand to look at it anymore. <laughs> I, I got that thing all dialed in. For those who who don't know, I I did, did a, I started working on a period correct resto model on that thing. So I put I put a new 3.5 in it and did, and did a custom port fuel, fuel inject system, which was never offered on those cars from the factory. So it's it's a really really cool car with a bunch of other neat details thrown in, and then I was, as I was on my my final victory test drive, drive for getting anything broken, broken everything, uh, some big seal and transmission let go. It's a two hundred R four or force overdrive trans trans and uh, auto, automatic and uh, and uh, transmission fluid every every time you started up. So I didn't didn't mess with it. But long story short, I have have sort a world world class five. And the hydraulic components, and I'm gonna, I still gotta get pedal assembly and stuff, but I'll be doing a, a custom manual swap on the, on the Monte Carlo, and I am extraordinarily excited about it. I'm tired of that mission. <laughs> the tired of the auto automatic. It's a dog. Yeah, I'm excited to hear that works out because it's always a challenge to to fit three pedals to a footwell that was designed for two. And I think that, oh, yeah. that and the console remodeling is always the challenge. Yes, fortunately, my car was a, was a floor ship in the factory, so I've already got the whole the whole cut, all that stuff. I can actually buy pedal conversion kits for G, G bodies because ori originally Gs were offered with offered with manual in the very early early start of the lifespan, like the late seventies. Um, but then they did away with it, and the, you know, the, like the Monte Carlo SS was only offered with with an automatic. Some a, a lot of people have conversions. You know that's something that was really cool. Like like once you get the the the, the bite of the main transmission and enthusiasm and stuff, and you're getting into prod project car, start thinking thinking, oh, what what about converting this over and over and this over? Because because you know a 305 gate does not make a lot, a lot of power. I mean I mean it's a lot with the tune port system, but it's still not like some crazy road burner, and it never will. The best way to extract every ounce of fun out of that setup up is be with a manual. Yeah, I mean at least then you know you don't feel like you're a passenger in your own car. And I know some people are like fed up with the save the manuals thing, but you know my answer to that is there's a time and a place and that time is when you want to be engaged with your car i can see a luxury car being an automatic that's great i can see there are some types of really technical off-roading where maybe you don't want to think about that one feature of car control but if you're going to be in a vehicle that doesn't have a lot of power and isn't inherently luxurious and isn't doing some specific purpose like i don't know towing or plowing the manual transmission makes you more than a passenger like the progress of modern cars automatic transmissions electric powertrains autonomous driver aids it's toward passenger status 
And the manual transmissions like, like a rebellion against that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. You know, I would say that here's the thing. If you're going to learn, um, in addition to my advice about finding an empty parking lot and just work on first gear, here's the other thing to think about. Start on a car that's got a big engine with a heavy flywheel because they're harder to stall. My story with the 2.2 liter four-cylinder Mazda is also my story with a third-generation Toyota MR2. Um, you know, this is a car that weighed 2,200 pounds, and it had an engine to match that was 1.8 liters, and it had a light flywheel. It had very little engine inertia, and even though it was not an intimidating car, it was more challenging to learn on that than it would have been for me to just go out and get my C5 Corvette, which I've got now, because that is hard to stall. A little engine without a lot of flywheel and very little low and torque, you're going to have to super subtle and you're gonna have to do more than let out the clutch you're gonna have to let out the clutch while feathering the throttle and that's a little bit more advanced very true and hopefully some listening to this this get the chance to experience a three-speed speed on the old school manual oh, yeah, that that is old school three on the tree my, my favorite i i i'm telling you right now right now on the tree will be my favorite forever um there's just nothing like it's weird because everybody knows about column shifters column shifted automatic transmissions a column shifted did manual transmission three speed or like tim said three on the tree tree is basically basically in the shape h pattern so the horizontal portion of the h is, is where you have neutral but but you got you know gearing towards you straight down straight up up as reverse Back down to middle, out, up is third, and then straight down, or excuse me, second, and then straight down is third. So you're, you're all this crazy like handwork and stuff like that, but that was extremely common with, with more with more to G type stuff. I think, think, oh, oh gosh, three, three on the trees were pretty much gone by the 60s, um, if I remember correctly. Three on the trees were just about gone by the 60s. The 60s were like the last flourish of three-speed transmissions. I know on like a lot of 1960s cars, if you got the most entry-level version, you'd often wind up with some sort of a three-speed transmission. You could even get a Corvette with a three-speed back in the 60s. It was still around. But three on the tree was really like an anachronism. And for the most part, that was the decade when floor shift auto and manual took over for good. Oh, yeah. I'll also say this, don't go by the power rating of the car if you're learning, because I had a TTRS, it was the first one, the only one with the manual, and on paper, that made more power than my C5 Corvette, not a lot more, but like 10 horsepower more, it was like, like 355, 360, but because it was a 2.5 liter five-cylinder engine with a light flywheel and no power when it was off boost, it was almost as easy to stall as that Toyota MR2 1.8 liter. So keep that in mind. You want a big engine with a lot of chug a chug to it. Fantastic. So what was your so what have been your favorite stick shifts? You've driven more cars than I have. You've got a better perspective on this. Oh goodness. Favorite stick shifts. <laughs> Honest, honestly, probably uh, any vehicle that has a tr TR sixty C sixty. The, old, the older 56 and like the Camar Camaros and not. Um, 
I had a, I used to have a fifth gen gen Viper, the 2013 GT and I think that that had a TRC60, uh, which is the same dream transmission they offered in the in the challenge and the Hellcat. If you know, might have to have to clear. It might be different variants of trans transmission, but those those were some favorites because because they had a really nice nicely clutch pedal that had a very defined grab point and then i'm like there's almost almost nothing more annoying when you're when you're trying to get used to a uh, a manual that you know the, the clutch pedal just has like a uniform motion up and down like i like to, like to feel like the, the pressure plate uh or the, the point of, of of release um and it's a lot easier to mitigate that that, that particular pillar point when it comes to learn, learning to you know step out step out into further and whatnot um but you know just good solid shift feel like you know kind of not necessarily not just you know, good good pod engagement and stuff i just i really like that transmission i hope to maybe put one one in something thing project one one day but they are price pricey yeah initially you folks what, what kyle's talking about is there was a succession of transmissions that started with the t5 from borg warner and then i believe the t56 was also designed by borg warner but the rights to it were bought up by a company called tremec and so the t56 was the six-speed version of the t5 and then the 6060 was a bigger stronger version of the t56 so you'll see that on like you know like your your vipers and you know your, your supercharged muscle cars things that are handling a lot of torque oh just yeah. a lot of power but how about, about you oh well you know for me i would say that honestly i love my corvette and i love my ls engines because uh, I've, uh, I've had so many of those 6060s 60, and T56s, and, and they do require a firm hand. Like, this is not your Honda shift linkage. No. It's a little it's a, bit, yeah, it's a lot notchy. Um, and you have to really slam it through. But I will say this. For enthusiastic driving, you won't get ahead of the synchros. That's something you need to talk about for people who are not familiar with manuals. The synchros make sure that you don't jam the gears when you go from gear to gear. You don't get that crunch. But they have to gain speed. So as one gear is shifted, the synchro mesh will get the next gear up to speed. If you just rifle it through without giving it a moment in the stroke of the lever, you'll actually hear a crunch as if you don't have synchros. And that's getting ahead of the synchro because you're shifting too fast. I've never had that happen with a T56 or a T60. But a lot of people are saying that with the new Nissan Z, especially in second and third, you can get ahead of the synchros, which is something I thought was dead on modern manuals. That's interesting. I, I personally never heard, never had that experience, but um, yeah, that, that is, it is interesting. I would also say that some cars that don't have a lot of low end torque, but have a lot of top end head have been fun. Like a Ferrari 328 from the eighties. And it was interesting because you learn that gearbox are like gearboxes are like people; they're individuals. So the 328, a guy let me drive his 328. By this point, there were no questions about whether I could drive it right or any of that stuff. But he said, "Look, the box, the box. is cold. You go first to third until the box is warm. Do you understand?" And, and, and I'm like, "Yeah, sure." He's like, "Why?" He's like, "It's got weak synchros on second. It doesn't like to be shifted first to second or third to second until it's warm. You just, just got to keep that in mind. I'm like, I'm glad I know that now. <laughs> but 
But once I warmed it up, it was wonderful because in an engine that can rev, you know, beyond 8,000 RPM and it makes good power, but it makes power in its rev band, you're always running like one gear lower than you would to keep the engine spinning. So you've got this sensation of like a Grand Prix engine behind you and you're not going all that fast because, you know, it's an 80s Ferrari V8. It's got like, like 268 horsepower or something. But the process of staying in the power band was the whole game with that car. And so I remember it really well. Even though the box itself was finicky, once it was warm, that Ferrari gated shifter, it's not the box so much as the linkage and the gate that forces you to be precise. And it just rewards. Like, you could spend years getting better and better at it, even though you could probably learn it in an afternoon. That was really memorable, that 328. That's really cool. cool. So advice for people learning a manual, go out and buy yourself like, like a junky old LS1 because you're going to have a relatively light clutch, a transmission that can take a beating, an engine that can get you going with nothing but idle torque, and easy access to spares if you can build something. Good point. point. So, uh, yeah, so like... Like 1997 C5 Corvette or like 1998 Camaro or Firebird, something like that. that that's what you want. Or a pickup truck, because pickup trucks are fun. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so from, from manual transmissions, a little bit of shop talk. This is what have you bought lately? Kyle, cars, parts, tools, and knowledge. What have you bought lately? All of it. <laughs> So I am always on the hunt for factory original service manuals. Whenever I buy a new project or whenever I'm working on an old car, I try to hunt down, down either their factory original or a reprint, a service manual I would have had in a dealership. You know, I, I like some of the, the DIY buy books out that you can get at like a like parts store and stuff. But in my experience, they, they leave out a lot of like nitty gritty detail. You'd have a lot of, of extra in, information covering mul multiple models that, you know, that, you know, don't really get down to the nitty gritty that you need. But if you're able to get a year specific booklet, uh, um, like for example, uh, um, nobody knows about, knows about this yet, but I just saw the deal on an 88 Camaro IROC Z convertible that will be brought to YouTube at, at some point. There is no, no, no day on that. Um, so like in typical fashion, I go on online and I buy the, the electric schematics mix manual, service man manual, three sales bros brochure because I, I want to see the, the orig original picture. Uh, um, every single classic vehicle I have, I've got original service manual books for and they, and they have been invaluable and they don't cost, depending on the vehicle, they don't cost near as much as you might, might think. It's super important to have the manual for the car you own. And when you go back to like the 30s, the 40s, even the 50s, a lot of times, even when you bought the car, you would get a manual that gave you hugely granular information about maintaining the car. Like to the point that those manuals that you got as the owner were like shop manuals compared to what you get today, where it just says light comes on, see dealer. But the actual shop manuals from back in the day 
They'd have everything in there from torque values to welding suggestions. When was the last time you saw welding at a dealer in the modern era? They are hugely valuable encyclopedias. Now for maintenance to restoration, if you're a resto shop, you need those manuals. Yeah, I think it was like 80 bucks for the two Ku Camaro manuals that I bought. I mean, 80 bucks is for the amount of value and knowledge that you get out of stuff like like that. Especially like like even if you're if you're not if you're say you're doing a doing a resto model. Talked about resto models before. Having all of the factory wiring diagrams and schematics. Especially, you know, I'm I'm a little, a little bit more familiar with the GM electrical architecture, but being able to figure out, you know, ignition hots, constant hots, and you know the ground circuits and and all that stuff. I mean, that is not not something you're going to just easy easily find on you know, Google, and let alone those those DIY you know part part door books. I mean, you you you're not going to find them. So instead, instead of struggling trying trying to figure out and asking you know all these internet forums, you know what about this? What's color? This what is this, this color wired? Get you some factory service miss manuals. You will thank me later. <laughs> yes, yeah, and not, not just for wiring, but there's. This period from like the early 60s to the early 80s that I call like the vacuum era, when increasingly complicated systems were powered by manifold vacuum, but we didn't yet have like really sophisticated digital electronics. The routing of those vacuum systems is as arcane as any wiring and having proper vacuum schematics is essential to taking care of cars from that era. Like that's one of those thank you later type things. Vacuum routing. Oh my gosh! Seven eighties GM. <laughs> yes, yes. And so what I bought this past week was a better multimeter, because one of the great mysteries with old cars is whether the current is making it from start to finish. Finding the bad wire or the blown fuse or the bad circuit, and one of the ways to do that is to get a really good multimeter that will, among other things, measure continuity. And so I bought a really nice multimeter. I spoiled myself so that when I'm going through old cars that have lots of problems, at the very least, I can find out when wires are busted somewhere between the start and the finish. Have you ever used a power probe? Ooh, you got to tell me about this. So it, it, that's actually the brand, brand that's called Probe. It allows you to power up items without circuits being completed so you can find out if you had an issue in the wiring green going up to uh, um, what you're working on so, so hypothetically speaking say you are, you are wired up a, a tail light hose on an old, old muscle car like that that and you don't don't rest of the wiring wiring in the car hooked up like the car is nowhere near near ready to power power on all of the electricals but you you want to be sure that 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 tight harness is doing what it's supposed to be do, doing and you can use this this power connect the leads to a 12 volt battery just have have a battery next to you and you can basically use the, the little probe to to put power on a wire on a on a bolt or what whatever and use that to power up the area that you're working on independent from the rest of the harness. It is, I've been, I, I'm not an expert at it. I've still been, been learning how to use my buddy's, buddy's power, but it is awesome to try to go back and double check your work before you go too far into reassembly. Oh man. Yeah. You got to look, look in that. Yeah. My multimeter is, it's a good multimeter, but it's not on that level. I have continuity, which is one setting. 
Um, I've got resistance, which has several different gradients. I've got voltage at several different scales. And then I've got current at several different scales. So it's a good piece, but it's not power probe good. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the other thing that I bought the, in the last week was I actually got the shop manual for my C5 Corvette because it's a modern car, no doubt, but it's still at that point in time. It's, it's 90s technology. The C5 Corvette launched in 97, but it was designed in the early 90s. So it was designed when there was still the reasonable expectation that an owner might work on his car. And being a GM rather than Ford, it's a little bit easier to get to the bits. So I did go out and I got the shop manual, not so much for now because it's in good shape, but for the road ahead, you save so much money with a simple car by just doing stuff yourself. I hate, I, I don't mean to keep harping on the, the shop manual bit, but remember, I got really lucky at a local flea market too long ago. Got a, uh, a 995 Ford F-350 power stroke. And I, somebody had the, the entire factory catalog uh, assortment for that truck. It was like a, like a three or four set book. Package. One of the one of the books was our stroke specific. Um, I snatched all that stuff up, and, and, it, and it was like big bucks. It was, pro it was probably three hundred dollars worth of mules. But <laughs> how much work I'm going to be doing on that by myself? With just how big and heavy that thing is. But I'm so happy I have those manuals. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's almost like an investment. You'll sell it for more than you bought it for someday. Like the way things are going. So the next project for me is going to be the fuel filter on my vet because it's got that smell where when it's been sitting for a while with a full gas tank, it's a pressurized fuel line. Fuel filters this little thing that's roughly where the driver's side rear wheel well is. And I can smell this like gas fumes coming out. It's not enough to like drain down the tank. It's not changing the, the level, but there's enough getting out that people are commenting. And I have to admit that my car smells like gas fumes. So 20-year-old car, it's time to go in there, replace that fuel filter. Um, it's going to be a pretty easy job, but just knowing where to go, what to have, and how to take the most direct route to the solution, that, that's really why I bought the shop manual in, in the most immediate sense. Oh, gosh. Kind of fuel stuff. So my 56 Ford Crown Victoria, I decided I was going to put, put Holly Sniper self-self fuel injection on it. Uh, fuel injection system. So over, over the last several weeks, weeks I've read the entire fuel, fuel system, made all custom A lines, every, everything's all aired up and done. But uh, unfortunately, it's one of those situations where I'm going to have to go into software and do a bit of man manual to myself. But one of the fitting, my return line fitting that I put into the tank, I sh should have used an NPT fitting, but I did. So I'm, I'm getting a very slight little bit of fuel, fuel seed but but it's funny funny how the littlest amount amount of hosed gas can just can just fumigate your garage and shop so be, be careful with fuel uh, obviously yeah. first <laughs> but i ended up having to boot the car outside underneath my my, my carport until i get a chance to swap out that fitting because it, it smelled in here here
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, you know, crossing my fingers. I, I believe it's, it's the fuel filter. It could be a check valve on the tank, in which case, you know, to hell with me. Then I've got to drop the tank. But I'm, I'm guessing that all things considered, it's coming from the wheel well. It's going to be the fuel filter. Let me ask you a thing, a question about the sniper conversions of carbureted cars. Fuel pump capacity and power in a fuel injected car is much higher than in carbureted cars. Do you have to install a boost pump when you make that conversion? No, no. Well, okay, okay. Let me refresh. So, with doing doing the sniper version, I deleted the mechanical fuel pump. I made my own block plate to go over where the fuel pattern in the engine block um, was the only source of you know, you know to to the, to the motor was that mechanical fuel pump. And I think you know they they only put out like six to eight psi, if that. At um, the sni sniper, I operate operates at like. 40 40 to 60 psi so it's a huge difference all of the factory fuel lines in the or in the uh fair lane were five five sixteenths because the, the carburetor motor didn't require require a whole lot of fuel um and with this setup i upgraded everything to three eighths or, or n6 is is closest to, th to three eighths um but, um but i do a fuel feed and return line um that's all managed on on sniper system it's got a built got a built-in cm all the sensors it's got a built-in fuel pressure fuel pressure regulator and i basically just mounted an external holly fuel pump on the frame rail and just plumbed it into a, a couple of existing holes on the tank itself so, so it's really not a, it's not a difficult difficult process it takes a little a little while very 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 easy easy wiring if you're looking to can to convert for, from a carburetor pretty straightforward and it is supposed to be a self-learning system but there, there are instances instances where the uh, it, it, it can't account for it or it it just depends on the motor depends on how it's set up i mean there's a lot of factors it basically monitors the, the air fuel of an oxygen oxygen sensor the uh, uh one of the uh, um pipes or exhaust exhaust um so i i have to go in and do a little bit of that but all the software is free it's just a map find time and figure figure it out that's true and that is a personal car project you've got a lot going on big question did you also go with like an msd electronic ignition when you did the uh, fuel injection conversion i did it it ran just just fine for hand on the, the oh, had the points against it can set up but, but i was already doing such a thorough refresh of the top of the motor i wanted to repaint everything and make it all pretty because whenever i go into a project a heavy like that i want you to know that i touched it i want it to look better than it did, did beforehand so um the process it was easier to go ahead and replace it so i got one of those msd ready to run distributors um they don't require one of those external boxes like a digix al unit so the ignition modules in the distributor um but i made i made custom spark plug wires and you know some upgraded aircraft pl plugs um so, um so it's a really nice setup just 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 get it dialed in yeah so now from the shop talk to uh, my exotic European vacation, there was some car spotting that I undertook on the streets of Geneva. I went to Zurich. I went to Geneva. I love to see cars that I normally wouldn't see in the United States when I go overseas. And so we're just going to start with the big one because I was walking along the waterfront in the inner harbor of Lake Geneva in the city of Geneva. And about a thousand feet away, I saw what couldn't possibly be the taillights of a very famous 90s supercar. I see walking, and I'm overtaking the traffic now. 
And it starts to look an awful lot like a Bugatti I loved when I was a kid. Now I start like power walking. I'm getting closer. And I expected to turn into like a Peugeot or Renault or like, you know, some sort of Porsche. And it turned out to be a Bugatti B110, like for real, on the road, in the wild. And I lost my crap out the phone i'm taking photos the guy must think i'm casing his car for like a bump and run or something or a robbery it was the most exciting moment of car spotting i've had since i was like a free driver like when i was a kid spotting vipers and lambos it was that exciting i'm so jealous oh my gosh and just for our friends out there who might not remember there was a period when a guy named Romano Artioli vaporized a couple of hundred million dollars resurrecting Bugatti in the 90s. He built a custom factory. He had a French aerospace contractor building the frames. You know, Marcello Gandini did the design. Everything was best available. It had a quad turbo, four cam, five valve cylinder, aluminum V12. And it was like the prototype of the modern supercar with a carbon frame and all-wheel drive. Monster. Wow. Yeah. Did you get to hear it? I did, and it wasn't what I imagined. I imagined that it would sound like nothing because you think, well, four turbochargers, it's going to be really quiet. It's going to be muted. It was quiet, but it was super exotic. Like, if you've ever heard an indie car engine in, like, the pits, where it's got, like, a fruity hunting rev, you know, almost like a Suzuki or, like, a Kawasaki superbike, where it's got, like, a hunting within the rev range, and, like, that sort of high-frequency buzz that you get from a race engine. I wish I could describe it, but, again, just, like, a 1,000cc superbike with a little bit more baritone to it. That's what it was like. Interesting. Did you yeah. video on your phone? <laughs> oh, I, I got like a video. I got photos. I put it on my Instagram. It was the most common picture I've ever put up on my Instagram. My Instagram is mostly watches, so that's really saying something. Oh, I got to check that out. Oh, yeah, definitely do. They made 139 of them, and maybe 10 to 20 of them were the EB110 SS, which was lighter and had over 600 horsepower. And I remember there was this article, January 1995, Road and Track. I know because I owned it when I was 11. I guess I was 10 at the time. I turned 11 that year. But they had a world's fastest car shootout. And it came down to the EB110 and the Jaguar XJ220. And the EB went over 220 and the Jag was just under. And they decided it was probably because the Jag was running two rearview mirrors and the Bugatti had one. <laughs> Oh, so here's another one I know you're going to love because it's a weird car. So you might remember that back in 2010, Aston Martin announced that it was going to be rebodying and reupholstering Scion IQs to make the Aston Martin Signet. Do you remember that guy? Classy. <laughs> So it was an Aston Martin remodeling of Toyota's answer to the smart car. Gosh, that's so funny. I've only seen a few of the Scions. Like, you really don't see a whole, a whole lot of them. Um, but I have never seen a Signet in person. 
I can only imagine that it's hilarious just to see. Is it, is it actually nice? Oh, it's incredibly small. So I had to look this up after I saw it because it was at night and I'm walking along this row of cars in Zurich and Zurich is like I've never seen. Like I've been to Dubai where there are Rolls Royce Cullinans and Lamborghinis everywhere. But Zurich is the richest place I've ever been to in my life. Every corner is Ferrari, Lamborghini, Porsche and Mercedes-Benz Geländewagen. And they're all AMGs. But I'm, I'm walking along this line of supercars by the lake. And all of a sudden, I see something that looks like a smart car, but it's got a David Brown grill on it. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I'm like, my, my eyes are like the size of saucers. I realized what it was. It was the Aston Martin Signet. And they made less than 300 of them. It was available for less than one model year. It was the most infamous Aston Martin ever made. And that's saying something, considering they also made the Laganda, which I, I also love. But <laughs> that's that's cool, though. <laughs> the inside, like I was shining my phone light through the window. The guy must have think he must have thought I was like going to steal his car. The inside was gorgeous. It was all leather and carbon and wool and polished metal, real metal. It was gorgeous. I, I genuinely I walked away wanting it. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I was just assuming it was some kind of badge engineered deal. At least they no. gave treatment. Oh, they gave it like the full Aston Martin work service thing. They restitched it. They reupholstered it. They installed their own gauges. It was beautiful. The only thing was they didn't do anything to it mechanically. So it still had the 97 horsepower engine. But the idea was pretty, you know, reasonable. Like if you're an Aston Martin owner in Europe, they're going to make it increasingly difficult to get into city centers. Um, there might be taxes on bigger cars, and you're going to have this, it's almost like a dinghy for your yacht. I remember, like, people made all sorts of fun of it and stuff when it came out, but, I mean, pra practically speaking, you're right. I mean, it, it, it makes sense. There's nothing nothing wrong having the option out there if you're just a huge Aston fan, but don't want to worry about ding dinging up your D9 or, or something like that. Just pop, pop on and down in the Signet. Yeah, I mean, it's the coolest thing on earth. You can park it like, you know, front end to the curb, and it only sticks out as far as normal cars width. So it made all sorts of sense in Zurich. But I will say this. Apparently, if you had enough money, Aston Martin Works Service would build one with a V8. And they built one with 430 horsepower. And that's the Signet I want. Where in the world did they put that motor? I can't even guess. I'm But... Vaguely <laughs> under one of the seats, I'm gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of the smart car that had the the Lamborghini Diablo V12 stuffed into the back of it with a with a huge wide wide kit on it. <laughs> oh my gosh! Like you know, there was at one point I think there was like a Volkswagen W12 and it was a Golf and it was like mental, um, like stuff like that is wonderful. And in theory, I guess if you've got enough money and you're like in Europe where these things rarely exist. You could go out, buy a Signet, ship it back to Tickford Street, where they have work service in, in Newport, Pagnell, England, and, and get one of those V8 Signets. And then you basically got something that's even more exclusive than an Aston Martin Valhalla. You've got, I guess, one of two now, if you commission that. And then it could be one, one of one, the manual tra transmission. <laughs> I'm waiting for some, like, oil shake to say, no, no, no. I want a V12. Yeah. <laughs> So good. So good and so bad.
<laughs> okay, so I had another one that was a lot of fun, and I forgot this existed. But in 2009, Peugeot decided a decade too late that it needed a French answer to the Audi TT. So they went back to a 2007 concept car, and they created the Peugeot RCZ. And it is exactly that. It is a weirder French Audi TT. Never heard of it. Most people haven't. But the best part is that they decided they needed a fast one. So they created the RCZR. Now, in France, your engine gets taxed on displacement. So they boosted a 1.6 liter four to all hell. It must have been running like 26 pounds of boost. It made 270 horsepower, manual transmission, a sub six seconds, zero to 60, super weird Peugeot design, pillarless coupes, absolutely wonderful. I'm happier to live in a world where this exists. And I saw one, RCZR, on the road, and I practically filled up my camera phone. It was like the Bugatti, only weirder. Wow. Man, I'm jealous. That sounded like a fun trip. <laughs> we we got to come up with some way to do like a Saab Kyle Timaso like joint trip to Europe. We'll do a little bit of watches and a little bit of cars, and we'll find a way to like mutually write it off as a business expense. Yes. <laughs> you hear that, IRS? We're coming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the final big sighting for me was something I desperately wanted in the U.S. Like the way you want a Honda Beat, I want an Audi A2. Also never heard of it. <laughs> so in the 1990s, Audi decided it was going to make two showpiece cars with its Alcoa-developed aluminum space frame technology. So their aluminum space frames would be used on their largest car, which was the A8, and on their smallest car, the A2. And so it was a combination aluminum space frame and monocoque in a mini car that had a curb weight starting under 2,000 pounds. And with a mini turbo diesel, and I mean a very mini turbo diesel, it was possible to get a real world 78 to 80 miles per gallon rolling around your European cities with your Audi A2. Whoa. Very much. <laughs> and in some ways, it was like the prototype of the modern premium small car because it was a lot more expensive even than an A3 or an A4 because of the way it was made. And so you wound up with this car that was in its way, a supercar. It was designed for one thing, efficiency and lightweight. It was as pure performance machine as a Ferrari F50 from the same era, but it was focused on just one thing, switching a gallon of gas or diesel as far as possible. And so people tried to hyper-mile them and they found they could get 88, 89 miles per gallon on diesel, which in Europe is cheaper than gas. So the Audi A2, hope you left. I chased one down the road to get my phone photos. And that was my trip to Europe. <laughs> I, I, I finally have had the chance, the chance to go to Europe a few times. Uh, the most memorable was a Gumball 3000. Back, back in like 2014 leave that for another 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 that but uh buddy and buddy and i we, we got into this competition of trying to uh, spot four four cause did you see yes. it yes <laughs> hilariously small little 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 smart car like ford 
and uh, <laughs> it's like a fiesta but smaller even right and, and, and we were like man how how cool would it be to bring over to the states and put some stupid big engine in it or something like that like, like the the it's like the ugliest but coolest looking, looking little car at the same time time <laughs> Yeah, because you remember back in the late 90s when Ford had like that new edge that they had on the Windstar and the Mercury Cougar and the Mustang, but they also had it on really small cars in Europe. And so they deployed it on this thing called the Ford Ka. And, you know, it's like a 96 inch wheelbase. It's like 140 inches long. It looks like you could pick up one end with your bare hands, but it was like that new edge styling that was supposed to be like jagged in 21st century and like point the way to the future. And it turned out to be a total like styling dead end for Ford globally, but they're so wonderful <laughs> for a moment in time. That was just something random I had to throw in there. <laughs> So coming attractions, folks, we're going to talk about neoclassical cars in the future, which is like the ultimate malaise era, like car genre. We're going to have some guests on from some very cool places for interviews. And Kyle, you've got some reviews coming up in the pipeline. Uh, let our guests know what to look for on Saab Kyle YouTube. Oh, gosh, I got I got lots of things. Um, the Escalade V, supercharged Escalade, absolutely mental. I got the the Mercedes EQS AMG, so, so all electric, super super high horsepower AMG. That's gonna, that's gonna be pretty fantastic. Oh gosh, Lee, got some uh, regular cars, got some trucks, new Sierra. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm several weeks behind on, on editing. So keep an eye out on the, on the social social platform. I'm Tim. He's Kyle. This has been the Drive and Dive.